Every book of the 66 books of the Bible has a subject, purpose, statement. Subject, what is it about? Purpose, the reason why that subject is written about. For example, let's take uh, just a goofy thing, uh, peanut butter and jam sandwich. Making a peanut butter and jam sandwich. The subject statement would be making a peanut butter and jam sandwich. The purpose statement might be peanut butter and jam sandwiches are easy to make nutritious, and what saw broke college students through college. The book of Romans subject and purpose statement, Paul defends imputed righteousness by grace through faith, explains progressive sanctification, and presents the certainty of ultimate glorification in order to encourage the Roman church to harmonious and victorious Christian living in direct response to God's grace and in constant reliance upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. The first part of that long paragraph is the subject, what is written about in the epistle to the Romans. Read with me. Paul defends imputed righteousness by grace through faith, explains progressive sanctification, and presents the certainty of ultimate glorification. Stop. That's the purpose. That's why God gave the Apostle Paul the epistle to the Romans. Now, what God wants us to get out of the epistle, the purpose that God had for Paul to write the epistle to the Romans, let's pick it up, in order to encourage the Roman church to harmonious and victorious Christian living in direct response to God's grace and in constant reliance upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you. That is the subject and the purpose statement of the book of Romans. I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7 are going to be our text this morning. So please turn there, Romans 1, starting at verse 1. And I'm going to read the seven verses at this time with you. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In general terms, this inspired greeting references three things. Three things in the greeting. Number one, the human author, Paul, we see that in verse 1. Number 2, the gospel, verses 2 through 6. And number 3, the recipients, the first readers of the letter. That is, the beloved saints who lived in Rome. That's verse 7. Now, look at how many verses, please, are given over to each of these three things in this greeting. Paul, he gets one verse, right? Verse 1. Then there's the Roman Christians who first read the letter, they also get one verse, right? That's verse 7. Now, the gospel, 
the gospel gets five verses. Verses two through six are all about the gospel. This tells us something. When we are interpreting God's word, when we are trying to figure out what God's word means, one of the rules of Bible interpretation is the rule of proportion. The rule of proportion. Basically, the rule of proportion is this. The more verses that the Holy Spirit devotes to a subject, the more important is that subject. And so when we apply this rule of proportion to Romans 1, 1 through 7, we understand that the gospel is the most important. Paul and the recipients in Rome were not nearly as important as was the gospel. This lines up with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, which read, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said then, and I say this morning, that it is of first importance, the gospel is, of first importance. And hence the title of this morning's message is The Screaming Priority of the Gospel. The Screaming Priority of the Gospel. I don't know who you are, but you are not more important than the gospel, whoever you are. I don't know what your occupation or profession is, but I know that your occupation and your profession are not more important than the gospel. Years ago, the Capital One credit card company asked with their slogan, what's in your wallet? Boy, I must be Scottish. I can't get my wallet out of my pocket. Now, what's in your wallet? Well, what's in my wallet along with my credit cards and my ID is the gospel. On the back of my business card is the bad news, good news of the Bible. What's in your wallet? We have gospel tracts reordered. May I ask you a question, tracts? Got a lot in this pocket. It's like a file cabinet. We have, may I ask you a question, tracks? We purchased more. We went all through the other ones we purchased. Well over a thousand tracks have been distributed by you. Keep distributing with prayer and love. There are more tracks on the back table in the foyer. Take them, use them. Don't take them if you won't use them, but use them. Give them out in prayer that God would save precious Bahamian people that are lost in sin. So what's in your wallet? I trust it's the gospel because there's nothing more important than the gospel. Well, now it's time to look at verse 1 a little more closely. And when we look at verse 1, we're going to see four disclosures. God the Holy Spirit discloses four things in one verse. You ready? Number one disclosure, Paul identifies himself as being the human author. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, etc. Disclosure two, Paul designates himself as being a bond servant of Christ Jesus. Paul, a bond servant of Christ Jesus. I've taught you before, but it bears repeating. What is a bond servant? A bond servant is a doulos in Greek. A doulos in Greek is a special category of person. 
A bondservant in the Old Testament was a person who, although emancipated and freed after six years of slavery in the Jewish system of the law, although that person was emancipated or to be freed under Jewish law in the seventh year, if they decided they could have no more kind, no more um, attentive, no more providing a master than they already had, they could elect to voluntarily become that master's servant for life. And so as a Jewish slave, if you, after six years, loved your master, trusted your master, wanted to be on the same page as your master, wanted to further your master's agenda, then you would take your ear lobe to a wood post and they would pierce your ear as a, uh, to signify that you chose, you weren't forced, you chose to be a bondservant. And Apostle Paul says, I am a bondservant of Christ. Are you? I didn't ask you if you're saved. I asked you if you voluntarily presented yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ as his lifelong bondservant. He says, jump, you say, how high? He says, go, you say, where? He says, now, you say, now. Are you a bondservant of Christ? That's what it means to be under the Lordship of Christ, you can't really sing, He is Lord, He is Lord, He has risen from the dead, He is Lord, with integrity if you aren't a bondservant by your own choice. Paul said, I'm a bondservant. I'm a doulos. With time, as the concept evolved and progressed with the passage of time, being a bondservant came to be uh, the highest minister in a king's cabinet who voluntarily served the king well. I want to be that. I want to be a bondservant. The highest member in the King Jesus cabinet who voluntarily serves King Jesus well. That's what I want. You know, if you look at it this way, there are two concepts. There is no, then there is the concept of Lord. And the person who tries, the Christian who tries to put Lord together with no, doesn't understand Lordship. Because the Lordship of Christ, to say Lord, means that you can't say no to Him. They don't go together. If He is Lord to you, then you do not allow yourself the freedom to say no to Him. If you say no to Him, He is not your Lord. You can sing about him being your Lord. You can talk about him being your Lord. But if you have anything to say to him that is no, when you know what he wants you to do, if you say no, then he is not your Lord. It's that simple. No is incompatible with Lord. They don't go together. We want to be a church of bond-servant believers who look at no to Jesus Christ and say, that's not an option for me. Paul said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. First disclosure, it's Paul that humanly wrote. It's second disclosure, he designated himself as a bondservant. The third disclosure, he says that he has been called. He was called to be an apostle. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. An apostle literally means a sent one. A sent one. More specifically, Scripture defines the term 
and other passages as an eyewitness of the risen Christ who was sent by God to demonstrate resurrection power in the first century when the Bible was not yet fully revealed. All that were technically apostles have died. They lived in the first century. Technically speaking, there is no apostle alive today. There is no apostle alive today. And I know where that came from because I watch television at night too. Acts chapter 1. You say, Pastor, show me that it's a, it's a biblical definition of an apostle. It's an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ who is an apostle technically. Acts 1, 21 to 22. You'll recall that Judas Iscariot, a phony professor of Christ, hung himself after betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver, the standard price in Jewish law for a common slave. After he suicided, it was necessary, verse 21 says, it is necessary, therefore, that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, that one of these should become a witness with us of his resurrection. It's saying that it was a witness of the resurrected Christ who knew Christ's ministry from his public inception at the baptism in the River Jordan by John the Baptist until the ascension, which included the visible bodily resurrection of Christ. That was what qualified someone to be an apostle. Was Paul an apostle? Well, he claimed to be an apostle in Romans 1.1. Well, yes, he was. He qualified. Um, in Acts chapter 9, the account of his conversion, you may recall he was going to cheer on the persecution of Christians as a very proud and self-reliant and self-righteous Pharisee. And the risen Christ intercepted him on the road to Damascus. And in Acts 9.1, it says, Now Saul, that was his name before he was converted, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And it came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you must do. So this Saul, who became Paul, qualified biblically as an apostle because he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and it messed up his sight. The glory of Jesus Christ was so powerful and real that it messed up Saul Paul's eyes. I personally think that was his thorn in the flesh, although I cannot be dogmatic. And then if you were to take time to look at 1 Corinthians 15.8 and Acts 22.14, you will see that the Bible, the New Testament, defines an apostle as an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. We don't have apostles today. Disclosure 1, Paul human author. Disclosure 2, Paul designates himself as being a bondservant. Disclosure 3, Paul describes himself as being an apostle. Disclosure 4, still in verse 1, Paul explained that he was set apart by God for the gospel. 
verse 1. Paul said, I know that I am set apart by God for the gospel. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul knew his job. Paul knew his role. He was saved and he met the risen Christ so that he would become a gospel preacher to the Gentiles. Paul knew that was his calling. Paul knew that was his sanctification. Paul knew that was his job. Paul knew that that was his role. And if you were to look at the New Testament, and if you were to analyze how the great apostle Paul used his time, his energy, his opportunities, his money, his prayer times, his networks with various people, if you analyzed how Paul used his travel, his mentoring of various people, his education, if you studied the New Testament as to how Paul used his sufferings and his illnesses, you would see that getting the gospel out was Paul's top priority. The Word of Life Bible Institute, Screw Lake, New York, I attended there after the University of Toronto. It was only there three months I took ill. I had to leave early. But in those three months, I remember a very significant devotional time in the evening with Jack Wurtzen, founder of Word of Life. He asked us as a student body what we thought were the most important spiritual disciplines. He asked, what's the most important spiritual discipline? Prayer came up. Fellowship with other Christians came up. Bible study came up. Giving financially the Lord's work came up. They're all good disciplines. But he said, you know what? You haven't hit the most important spiritual discipline, in my opinion, yet. Wurtzen said, in my opinion, the most important spiritual discipline is sharing your faith. Evangelizing. Did you know why? Because when I set my heart and my time and my money and my mouth to evangelizing, I pray more. I study the Bible more. I want to be with God's people more. I want to give to ministries that are evangelistic more. Paul knew. He was set apart from all that he used to be to be Christ's apostle, to be one sent to bring the gospel to Gentiles. Do we know that? That we've been left on earth to do what the angels can't do? Tell others of Christ. Invite them to trust Jesus to be their Savior. Laser beam focus. Paul was chosen by God, set apart by God, to get the gospel to the Gentiles. We have a dog, Yankee, a standard poodle. He's a lovely dog, lovely disposition. Smarter than me, but that's not difficult. When our dog, Yankee, in Canada was in a litter of pups, my wife and kids went up to meet the litter. And over the parts of two days, my wife and kids watched these puppies and their personalities. They all had a different color ribbon to identify them. And they observed which pup of the litter was most interested in our kids. They interacted most naturally with our kids. And sure enough, Yankee, who had a green ribbon, was unnamed at that point. He was selected. He was chosen by our family. And some days had to pass for him to get old enough to travel from Canada to the United States by car. And while we waited, the breeder would email us. And one of her emails said this, you know, Yankee is demonstrating that he feels very chosen. Paul knew that he was chosen. He demonstrated in his lips and his life that he knew that he was chosen to bring the gospel 
to the Gentiles. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Of course, that Paul understood this, that he was set apart to bring the gospel to Gentiles, really was very helpful to him because he didn't have an easy life. He wasn't whisked from conversion to heaven on a bed of roses. He had many sufferings and trials and setbacks and abuses in the service of the Savior. But because he knew he was called, set apart to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, in Philippians from a jail cell, he could write, this one thing I do. It wasn't these many things I dabble in. He said, but this one thing I do. Do you have a one thing that you do? A one thing you know that you have been saved to do? Do you have a sharp focus in how you live your life? Do you have a focus that overarches all your other foci? Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary in Ecuador, his wife Elizabeth was promoted to glory not too long ago. He said in his journal, in a prayer to God, Jim Elliott wrote, make me to be a crisis man, a fork in the road that anyone that meets me has to make a choice about Jesus Christ. Is that your focus? I want to be a crisis man. Because the gospel is the focus of the book of Romans. The gospel is the screaming priority that the gospel is a screaming laser-focused purpose, according to the epistle to the Romans. It's the top priority that we ought to have. So, it should be reflected in our to-do lists, in our smartphones, in the words that we speak in the average day. It ought to be reflected in our parenting. It ought to be reflective in our mentoring relationships with other people. It ought to be reflected in our evaluations of people who we meet. The gospel should be our focus, our pinpoint focus in our last wills and our testaments. Focus. The gospel deservingly is the focus of everything in our lives. The gospel should be the top priority, the screaming priority of how we use our time and our energy and our opportunities and our money and our prayer times and our networks with various people and our travels and our mentoring of other people like our kids still at home, our education, our suffering, our illnesses. The gospel should be revealed to be the focus and the priority in all these areas of our lives. Verses 1 to 6 now. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are called the called of 
Jesus Christ. And I'll stop at the semicolon. Now we're going to be told four things about the gospel in verses 1 to 6. Ready? Number one, the gospel fact one, the gospel literally means the good news. That's verse one. Gospel fact number two, the gospel was predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse two says that. Scriptures like Isaiah 53 that describe crucifixion, which the Phoenicians didn't even invent crucifixion until seven centuries after the prophet Isaiah. Or Psalm 22. Or I could cite many other Old Testament passages that predicted the gospel. Gospel fact three, the gospel centers on God's son. Look at verse three. According to his son. Now I want to give you some things under his son that the text gives us. The gospel is centered on God's son. Now let's consider God's son based on what is written in these verses. Six things. Six details about God's son, Jesus. Number one, Christ's deity. He is God. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is God. Very God. I see that in verses 1 through 3a. Second reality about Jesus. Oh, by the way, before I go to the second reality about Jesus, when it says son of God, in the Hebrew mind, son of meant just like. So when Jesus accepted people calling him the son of God, the Pharisees picked up rocks to kill him because they saw it as blasphemy. But the problem was he was God. He wasn't blaspheming. Son of God means just like God. Now, the second fact about this wonderful son of God in the text is that Jesus was Jewish in his humanity. He was descendant of King David, verse 3, according to his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, humanity, according to the flesh, Christ's Jewish humanity. Third fact about Christ, Christ's vindication. Christ Jesus was proven to be who he said that he was by being raised bodily, literally from the dead. Verse 4, who was declared the son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. The fifth fact about Jesus in these verses is Christ's grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. God's unmerited favor to rebels like me and you. Sixth fact about this wonderful son of God is that he deployed Paul. He sent him To the Gentiles. And so, we understand the Great Commission is to us. After the ascension, it's to us. Jesus' last words before ascension should be given first priority by his church. You know what he said. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. You know, somebody pointed out to me that that's proof that the original apostles were afraid to fly in an airplane. And lo, I am with you always. I don't think that's what it means. (laughs) 
Now, moving along to our fourth gospel fact, will you remember the first fact, the gospel is good news? The second fact, the gospel was predicted by the Old Testament. The third thing, the gospel centers on God's son, and then we unpacked what it means for God to have a son named Jesus. And last gospel fact in the text, the gospel impacts people at the levels of earthly status, relationship status, and spiritual status. Listen, the whole passage. One one, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, according to his Son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel impacts the person who believes on Jesus at the level of earthly status, the level of relationship status, and the level of spiritual status. Let me explain. In the first place, these original readers were Roman citizens. Their earthly status was a coveted status in the ancient world. They were Roman citizens. It had great privileges. When they were going to beat Paul, he played the Roman citizen card and they backed off. Maybe an equivalent to Roman citizenship as an earthly status that's preferred as American citizenship these days. When you're an American citizen, you have an earthly status that many people in the world would like to have for the doors that opens of opportunity. These first readers were Romans. They had an earthly status. But they didn't just have an earthly status they also were loved by God. They had a tender relationship with God that had been forged at great price by the Son of God shed blood. The Good Shepherd was not just a theoretical concept to them when they believed the gospel. He became the believer's individual Good Shepherd. I love this picture because there's one lammy in the good shepherd's arms. And if you picture yourself as being the one and only lamb in Jesus' arms, you would be right when understanding his tenderness, his attentiveness, his protectiveness, his provision, his forgiveness that he has for you as his little lambing if you're saved. And so these original readers on an earthly status level were Roman citizens, but on a more important level, they'd come into a relationship with the Good Shepherd, the Savior, the Lord, Jesus Christ. Have you? They weren't just people who had an earthly status of Roman citizen. They weren't just believers who had a relationship status with a Good Shepherd. They were also saints. They were also saints, says in um, the text. Saints are... That's our spiritual status. A saint is a redeemed, born-again believer in Jesus 
who is set apart for God's possession and use. That's the normal Christian life. If you've trusted Jesus to be your Savior, then God is sanctifying you. He is setting you apart from the world that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. He is setting you apart from sin. He is setting you apart from self for His own possession and use because you're no longer your own if you're saved. You've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body. A saint is the spiritual status that those first readers had. I mean, the marvelous miracle that they were once dead in trespass and sin, but they had been regenerated and made alive in Christ. That's your miracle if you're saved. You once were dead as a doorpost in trespass and sin, Ephesians 2.1. But God, in His grace and mercy and the finished work of His Son, made you alive, gave you life where you once were dead. Why? So that He could set you apart from sin, self, and the world for His possession and use. My mother and father uh, loved to entertain people. They always have. And it was a very common practice on the early afternoon or late afternoon of a day they were having company in for dinner to our house that my mother would set around the house in fancy dishes peanuts and mixed nuts and candies and all kinds of things I just loved. And there every, ter- every turn in the house I walked was a dish of something I loved. And I knew they were set apart for the company's possession and use. And I think my mother took an inventory on each dish. because I always got busted if I got into what was set apart for the company's possession and use. Now, I should say, after the company left, if they did need everything, then mother said, have at it. You've been set apart if you're saved. You've been set apart for God's possession and use. Don't mess with this world system that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. Don't mess with sin with its temporary pleasures that's really a, a, a jail cell. Don't Bow down to yourself as the boss of your life. If you know Christ as Savior, He's your Lord. He's setting you apart for His possession and use. Let Him. Let Him. The Gospel is magnificent. It affects our earthly status. It affects our relationship status. It affects our spiritual status. We are saints. As I'm preaching to a crowd of this size, I know something. That although we all look to be fine, that in the eyes of heaven we're all not fine. That some here this morning have never transferred their trust to the finished work of Jesus. They know the language of the church, but not the Lord of the church. The gospel is the wonderful message that's a screaming priority to this pastor and to this church, and I trust to all of you, that Christ has died for sins and arisen. That's the gospel. Have you acknowledged that Jesus died for your sins in your place as your substitute? And have you by faith acknowledged that He didn't stay dead and Father raised Him after dying to show that your sins are all paid for in full? If you've never made 
that confession to the Lord. You're not yet saved. And coming to this wonderful church building will no more make you to be a Christian than going to a garage will make you to be a car. This morning, I'm going to invite you in a moment. Come to the front. There'll be people to pray with you. If you want to settle this issue and you want to trust Jesus and only Jesus to be your Savior from sin, I've been praying for you all week. I know something else in a group this size that believers, true believers, that some are not living under the Lordship of Christ. That when we go through those doors, for some of us, we go into a week that we don't really let Jesus be the boss. And that reflects in the choices we make in our marriages, in our money, in our workplaces, in our parenting, in our free time. I'm going to give an opportunity for those that are saying, I want to live under the Lordship of Christ. I'm a Christian, but I want to live under the Lordship of Christ. I want to stop this, this fiasco of thinking that I can say no to my Lord when, in fact, He is Lord. I'm going to give a chance for believers, truly born-again people, who have been trying to marry no with Lord to say, I quit. I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ, whatever it costs me. No matter what anybody else thinks, I'm going to live under the Lordship of Christ. I'm going to stop trying to say no to my Lord. And so I'm going to ask if some music could begin as I pray. And we're going to have the pastors and wives who are available this morning to come to the front at this time. If you need to settle your salvation, you come forward and someone will pray with you in the front. If you need to say, I have not been living under the Lordship of Jesus as a Christian, I want you to come forward as the music plays. This is to make a statement to God with witnesses that are praying for you to come forward and say, I am going to trust Jesus Christ for the first time and be born again to become a child of God. Or I'm coming forward as a Christian who's tried to be saying no to the Lordship of Christ. Would you come forward now? Would you come forward and seek prayer? Lord, as the music plays and as your spirit moves, this is not an invitation from a preacher and this is not an invitation from a church, but this is an invitation from you because you love sinners and you desire us to come in relationship with you. And you've died, Lord Jesus, to prove that love. This is your invitation because believers who have been bucking the Lordship of Christ and want to repent of that can know that Jesus Christ is willing and so able to be the Lord and boss of their lives, of their marriages, the money, the parenting, Lord and master of their jobs. Lord, you, you come forward as the Lord calls you to be saved or as the Lord calls you to settle the Lordship issue as a Christian. You come forward, we'll wait. People here to pray with you.
the Lord tugs on your heart with the tug of love, don't worry what others might think if you come forward. Respond to Him. God bless you as you come. Others need to come this morning. Spirit of God, move in our feet. Do what only you can do. Some are coming forward to accept salvation for the first time in Christ. And others are coming forward to say, I want to live with Christ as Lord in my life. Precious time. He's near to save you. He's tender to become your Lord. These are decisions He's drawing you to make. No one can make this decision for you. You need Christ as Savior. You step out and come forward. Settle the issue. to gladly stand under and live under his lordship you step out and come forward he deserves that allegiance Lord I thank you for those who have come forward in obedience humility. I pray for any others that you are drawing that they would step out while there is still time in these invitations. Spirit of God, be alive and active in this church. Exalt Jesus. Lift him high. Anyone else? You need Lord as Savior or you need the Lord as Lord? There's time for you to come.